0: Welcome to Cool Story Bro Week Three. We are just two weeks out of Easter and we couldn't be more excited. And we're going to celebrate the resurrection together. We're going to do it loudly. It's going to be fun. I cannot wait. Um, On your way out, if you would like to put a fancy Prodigal Church Easter Sunday uh, yard sign in your yard, feel free to take one or 10, whatever you want. And uh, they're on your way out. You can't miss them on the exit door. And uh, it's going to be great. What we really want to encourage our core people to do is serve at one of the Easter services and then attend the other with friends and family. Uh, There is going to be an immense amount of people uh, here, and we want to be the most loving and welcoming and accepting place on the planet. So... Uh, We want to have all of your pretty faces greeting people, saying hello, uh, welcoming people, helping out in hospitality and coffee and all those things. So uh, we encourage you guys to think about that, maybe figure out which service you want to attend and invite people to and which service maybe you could serve at. That would be awesome. Uh, In my socks drawer at my house, um, I have a butterfly knife now. butterfly knives are illegal, okay? This particular butterfly knife was purchased by a teenager on a missions trip to Ensenada, Mexico, and then confiscated by his youth pastor uh, on that same missions trip to Mexico. Uh, There were so many times where we tell students, hey, don't buy anything illegal that you can't bring across the border, that's bad. Don't do that. They would buy bottle rockets and like M80 fireworks and things like that. And so the only reason I was in youth ministry is so I could confiscate those and then bring them home and play with them there. And so, uh, I, true story, I, I did confiscate uh, multiple things like that. Uh, one particular time, uh, uh, one of my staff had overheard a bunch of the high school guys um, Playing with their butterfly knives, like their their switchblades and stuff. And so I go up to the guys in their cabin and I go, Hey guys, uh, I'm gonna need all the knives on the bed. And it's dead quiet. They're just staring at me. And I go, Hey guys, I know you guys bought knives in Ensenada. You're not supposed to. Just throw them all down right now. It's dead quiet. Like, who's gonna be brave? And then one kid goes, I'll do it first, John. Gets his knife, puts it on the bed, and then, like all the other guys, like they could have started like a ninja monastery with all of the knives that were laid on this bed. So I put them in a bag and I go, hey, you guys did the right thing. God's going to really move this week in Mexico. You know, I walk away and I go, come and talk to me at the end of the week and, and we'll talk about your knives. And so then the end of the week comes along and they go up to me and they're like, hey, John, are we going to get the knives back? And I'm like, no, you're not going to get the knives back. Um, I go, I've got good, good news and bad news. And they're like, okay, give us the bad news first. I go, zero chance you guys are getting knives back. You shouldn't have bought them, I told you not to. And they're like, okay, okay. But what's the good news? And I go, the good news is, I just saved a load of money by switching to Geico on my insurance. <laughs> You're so mean. And I go, what? I saved, guys. That's good. Uh, the switch there, right? The, the, the moment of, oh, that's what the parables of Jesus all do they have this provocation in them and we have to listen closely and read them closely to find out what that provocation may be our parable this morning is the parable of the laborers found in Matthew 20 if you have your bibles you can turn there we'll start at verse 1 it says this for the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire workers for his vineyard he agreed to pay them a denarius for the day and sent them into his into his vineyard okay super normal occurring story in the ancient world Guy goes out in the early morning to hire workers, pay them a denarius, send them into the vineyard. Uh, ancient farming communities and even now, day laborers will stand on a corner in the early hours of the morning, maybe 4 or 5 a.m., and wait to see if there's work for them. Same practice that happens today, the same practice happened in the ancient world as well. Those who do not get hired by the various local landowners will probably have nothing to eat that night. And often the people who are hired first are young and strong men people who are healthy in the prime of their lives. And the landowner goes out at 6 a.m. to contract his workers. Now, a number of commentators find this odd because a wealthy landowner like this gentleman, uh, he would have somebody else to go do that, maybe a foreman of some sort. He himself wouldn't go out at 6 a.m. to find laborers for his vineyard. And in this parable, the laborers agree on a denarium for the day's work. This was the typical wage for a Roman soldier. Uh, it, was, it was a day's pay. And the landowner and the workers agreed upon the payment. And the Greek word here for agree is symphonio. Symphonio. It's where we get the word symphony. In agreement. We have come together. We have a symphony. We have a symphonio. In agreement. Uh, you will do this work, and I will pay you a denarius. And our presumption here, as it was with the first hired, is that the householder, the landowner, has employed all he found. The parable gives no indication that there was somebody who was left out. Then, after this familiar opening scene of the parable, the parable becomes increasingly strange. Let's read verse three. About nine in the morning, he went out and saw others standing in the marketplace, doing nothing. He told them, You also go and work in my vineyard, and I will pay you whatever is right. So they went. He went out again about noon and about three in the afternoon and did the same thing. So he goes morning, mid-afternoon, searches out, finds more unemployed workers. And he promises to pay them whatever is right. He doesn't say, I will pay you whatever is fair. He says, I will pay you whatever is right. And this is an important distinction, as we shall see later in this parable. Now, it's a very strange scene because... uh, Normally, the owner would have hired all the workers he needed first thing in the morning. But he keeps going out looking for more. Why? And as we read the parable, we start to get the sense that the landowner hires these people later in the day, not because he needs them, but just because they're there. That our landowner returns to the market over and over again suggests one of three things. Number one, that he is clueless about the number of workers he needs. Number two, that he has an insufficient number of workers, although he has hired everyone available, or three, he has another agenda. I believe it's the latter. Now, what that agenda is, is yet to be seen, but I think he's on to something. It remains a mystery. Verse six, about five in the afternoon, he went out and found still others standing around. He asked them, why have you been standing here all day doing nothing? Because no one's hired us, they answered. He said to them, you also go and work in my vineyard. With each moment, the parable starts feeling less like a story about farming, right? The characters seem less and less about a real vineyard and real workers, but something else going on here. The owner goes back to the marketplace 5 p.m., one hour before everyone leaves the job for the day. We are told that they are found standing around the marketplace doing nothing. These last group of laborers, they're the laborers that no one wanted, okay? They would be the real outcasts. These would be the paralytics, the blind, those missing limbs, lepers, the old, the widows, and the very young. And they often wait all day to be hired, hoping and praying that someone will come, needing them, wanting them with mercy and grace. Oftentimes, they come home empty-handed, not enough to be able to provide for their families, This parable in Matthew 20 continues the theme that what Jesus is building on from Matthew 19 and it's this. God's love for those who are most vulnerable in society. This is actually one of our core values at our church. That God has a particular heart and a passion for those who are on the low end of society, the disenfranchised, the poor, the sick, the lonely. These are are the ones God desires and has a particular heart for, and so should we. The landowner asks, why are you standing here all day long not doing anything? Because no one hired us. He says, you guys go and work in my vineyard either, or you guys work in my vineyard as well. Notice that he doesn't even promise to pay him anything. He just says, you guys come and work too. There's no symphonio. There's no agreement on what they should be paid at all. He just says, he gives them a purpose. They're, they're doing nothing and now they're doing something productive. He just invites them to work. And as followers of Jesus, we must develop a heart for the hurting in our world. We must develop a heart. It, it, it's got to be a, a, not just a, a feeling, not feeling bad, but actually practice doing something to help the needy in our world, the hurting. A concrete practice of loving our neighbor as ourselves. As followers of Jesus, we must develop this conditioned reflex. Uh, A conditioned reflex is a lot like a natural reflex, right? Natural reflex, if you put your hand on a stove, automatically we retreat, right? That's a natural reflex. You go to the doctor, they put your knee, they they get that little triangle. Natural reflex, right? You didn't have to train your body to do that. It just happened naturally. A conditioned reflex is the same thing, except for you actually have to train yourself for this. Uh, For example, the sneeze. Cover your mouth, right? This is something that doesn't come natural to us, but as a a culture, we encourage it, and it eventually becomes natural, right? You go, huh, huh, and you put your hand up. Stand back, everyone. And then you cover your mouth. Have Have you ever seen a sneeze in the right light? Like in the sun or something? And you just let it fly or you watch somebody else sneeze in the sunlight you have a geyser of debris that erupts out of your mouth with every sneeze i know you don't think it is because just achoo but i mean it you are spouting a waterfall towards everyone around you small tangent here women is is the high pitched tone necessary when you sneeze? The uh, I know so many girls who that's their sneeze. Like, do you think that like a high pitched mouse squeal like that we're gonna think it's cute? Um, we don't. Cover your mouth. Uh, by now, as adults, it should be a conditioned reflex that when we sneeze, we cover up. Um, I know some people. My, my my twin brother, he does it in his shirt. He does that chew, and he, and that just seems gross, right? Like I, I hear like that that's more hygienic, but it's like then you've got like all up on your chest. Like I don't want my germs, this geyser of debris, on my shirt. Condition reflex, cover your mouth. We must develop that in our own lives when it comes to loving those who are most vulnerable, those who are hurting those who struggle. When we see someone hurting, when we see someone struggling, when we see someone alone, we've got to do something. We've got to gravitate towards them. We must develop a conditioned response so that in that moment we do something to help. And it's hard. It's going to take some work, but eventually you'll start covering your mouth. Eventually it'll become a natural reflex. When you see someone in need, we go and do something even if it's small, even if it's a conversation, even if it's a side hug, whatever it is, we need to develop this conditioned response to go to the most vulnerable. Here we see the landowner prioritizing here, seeing them, giving them work, giving them purpose. You, he invites them. Someone in your office is an outcast. Say their name's Toby. You don't like Toby in HR. Invite them in. Befriend them. Someone in your circle of friends is hurting, heartbreak, accident, loss of job. Reach out to them. Someone in your neighborhood that got their home broken into. Do a yard sale. Give them the profits. We have to develop this conditioned response, this reflex that where there's a need, we go and meet it. We go and serve. We go and love. It's not about feeling bad. It's about doing good. Let's finish the parable. Verse 8. This gets good. When evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, Call the workers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last ones hired and going on to the first. The workers who were hired about five in the afternoon came and each received a denarius. So when those who were hired first... Wow, where did that come from? Uh, My voice cracked. But each, uh, So when those who were hired first, they expected to receive more. But each one of them also received a denarius. When they received it, they began to grumble against the landowner. These who were hired last worked only one hour, they said. And you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the work in the heat of the day. But he answered one of them, "'I'm not being unfair to you, friend. Didn't you agree to work for a denarius? Take your pay and go.' I want to give the one who was hired last the same as I gave you. Don't I have the right to do what I want with my own money? Or are you envious because I'm generous? So the last will be first and the first will be last. The parable should be called the parable of the complaining day laborers or the parable of the surprising salaries. This landowner, he's a troublemaker, right? He's up to something here. You see, in the first century, it was customary to pay those who worked the longest, pay them first. And if the landowner had done what was customary, these first workers would have known nothing. They would have not known what the other laborers got. They would have just assumed they got paid less. But instead, the landowner intentionally flipped the script and he wants them to see something. He wants these laborers who have been there all day to see something or perhaps see someone. He's a troublemaker. It makes much more sense to us when those of us who worked harder and longer receive some kind of greater recognition or reward. Just in life, right? Like, don't you think there ought to be some kind of merit system? Those who are involved in religious activities or who are overall good people should get a reward of some kind. Jesus is keenly aware of this basic urge in all of us. That's why he told the story. God's system looks strange for us. The system of the world that we are used to is completely different. Even spiritually mature people who have learned to appreciate God's system as far as heavenly things are concerned must still live in the merit system on the everyday basis, right? In our work, in our schools, our lives on earth. Everything is based on a system of merit, of fairness. You get what you earn, and you earn what you get, no more and hopefully no less. It has permeated all of society. It's permeated the church. From the cradle up, every one of us lives on this merit system. We have this innate desire for fairness. Even lotteries, right? Lotteries, they go to great trouble to prove to everybody that what happened, whoever won, was done fairly. We're obsessed with this. There's actually an independent organization solely devoted to to ensure the integrity of the national lottery. And they commission and publish independent research to confirm that there is no evidence of non-randomness in the results of the lottery. We're obsessed with fairness. Pretend you are a a pastor or a, a leader in a church and you are called to the bedside of a dying missionary. The people of God have surrounded this man to pray for him, to anoint him. And you remind the Lord as you pray for all of this man's years of service and how he buried a son or a daughter or perhaps a wife out there in the far-flung missions field living on nothing. You remind the Lord of all that he could do in his work still. And you don't quite say it, but it's there. Underneath the surface, inside your own spirit, you're praying, Lord, This man really deserves your help. The missionary dies, and you go on wondering, what's God's deal? Or perhaps you're called to the bedside of another sick person, a known criminal, who has lived his life selfishly to hurt others, not to help others and he's dying in a hospital of a heart attack. There's scarcely enough blood pumping across his brain to enable him to think. But between gasps, he says to you, pray for me, I've treated God badly, but please pray for me that I'll come up right in the resurrection. You're you're torn a little bit. You don't even ask him to be healed, right? You just pray that he comes up on the right side of the resurrection. Then he's healed, and he walks out of the hospital, and he's as good as anybody. And you go your way pondering God's system. What's God's deal? Grace is received, not deserved. God's grace is about mercy, not fairness. What would have been fair in the parable is that the workers who had worked their butt off all day, who showed up early and stayed late, they should get paid more than the person who only worked for an hour and didn't really want to be there in the first place. It's only right, it's only fair. When we speak about grace, it's something altogether different. In this parable, Jesus is calling into question the world system of merit and instituting God's economy of grace. He calls into question the world system of merit. And he institutes something completely altogether different, God's system of grace, God's economy of grace. Who do you relate to in this parable? Like, if we're honest, if we're honest we relate to the guys who were there all day, right? How come none of us go, I immediately am drawn towards the person who only worked one hour? No, immediately what awakens in us is that is unfair. And we relate ourselves to the people who have been there all day who are upset. Why don't we relate to the workers who only were there an hour? It's because when it all boils down to is we all think we've been treated unfairly. Every single one of us, thinks that we've been treated unfairly, that we deserve more, that God's simply missing some things that we are deserving. And Jesus is aptly aware of this in, inside all of us. Look at the end of the parable. Verse 15 says this, don't I have the right to do what I want with my own money? Or are you envious because I am generous? They, they ask a the question, but they don't answer the question. The landowner says, or are you resentful because I'm generous? We're resentful because you're generous. Uh, the, the, The laborers are asked the question, but really it's the audience who's asked the question. We are the ones left to respond. And if we're honest, we're resentful because he's generous. We haven't gotten what we deserve. So you definitely don't need to go give them what they don't deserve. Even in our own spirituality, we're obsessed with fairness. This system of merit And God says, My grace is bigger. My love is more grander than that. And it doesn't make sense. It's not logical. Love is not according to logic. Love is according to love. In your own marriages, this needs to be true. 1 Corinthians 13 says this love keeps no record of wrongs. That's true. It doesn't. We shouldn't be bringing up the past and all the negative things that our spouse may have said or done before in the past. Love keeps no record of wrongs. We move forward. Great. But I'm also convinced of this. Paul left this out, but I think it's just as true. Love also keeps no record of rights. Uh, so many, my, many of Sarah and I's uh, intense fellowships is, is because we're keeping track of the good. I did this, I did this, I did this. And so therefore, you should do this. Merit, fairness. But no, no, it's okay to outlove your spouse. It's okay to outlove that person and to lose track of the system of merit altogether and live out love and grace supernaturally. That's what God calls us to do. I was a youth pastor for 11 years. And in 2006, I led a team of 30 high school students to Malawi, Africa. And there's this one uh, girl on the trip. I, di- I didn't know if she was gonna, how she was going to do. It's kind of a crapshoot, you know. The students that I think, oh, this person's ready. They're going to they're gonna be awesome. They, you know, are a pain. <laughs> and the, the students who I'm like, I don't know if this person's going to make it. Like, they may want to get a ticket home. Uh, they blow my mind. They're, they're incredible. And there's one particular student I thought for sure this person hated me and wasn't going to have fun and was going to be, like, the, dreading the whole thing. Uh, but she goes. We go serve some... Kids at some orphanages, we play with kids, we work, we share our stories. And one particular time, this girl shares her story, and I saw, as she's telling the story, I can see something in her. It's almost like a spiritual reality of her holding back. She was, she was holding something back, inside, something, or something inside of her was holding back. And I didn't think much of it until that night. We're all kind of in the place where we're, we're, we're sleeping, and the guys are in one place and the girls in the other place. Uh, a, a student comes in and says, hey, John, so-and-so's crying outside. Can you talk to him? And it was this same girl. And I'm like, sure. I get out of my sleeping bag, and I go out there with, with another girl student, and I go, hey, what's up? Like, what's going on? How, how can I help? Just crying, intense weeping. And thirty minutes goes by, she doesn't say one word. I, I tried to ask her questions, all she could do was cry. So I prayed, Lord Help me to discern what the issue needs to be dealt with. Help me discern what it is. And so her friend prays as well. Another 30 minutes goes by. I try and speak into her life, but the only thing she did was cry. So I'm praying, like I'm running out of prayers to pray. Like this is just an intense moment of an hour long of her weeping uncontrollably and me trying to encourage her and pray and figure out what the Lord's trying to do in all of this. I prayed more and asked the Holy Spirit to help me in the moment. And... Nothing happened that first hour. I finally kind of began to sense something, that the root of this issue was unforgiveness. See, I had been, encountered many students and many people over the years where someone had done something so wrong to them and that, that person couldn't forgive that wrong, couldn't forgive the, 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 the one who hurt them. And that became like a dark spiritual aura, like Charlie Brown with the cloud following him wherever he goes, raining, Unforgiveness is like that, right? It's like drinking poison and waiting for the other person to die. And so I began to sense the spirit that, that this has something to do with unforgiveness. So I began to pray with boldness, to speak with great clarity and passion. And I said, whatever happened, I know everything inside of you says that you can't forgive, but something deeper inside of you says that you must forgive. Forgive. And she glances at me, for the, perhaps for the first time. And so it, I felt like I was onto to something. And so I began to, to, to name it. I'm going to say out loud, with not knowing for sure, but I'm going to say out loud what the issue is. So I look her in, in the eyes, and I tr- I'm trying to say, it's something that happened to you. It's something that someone did to you. I try and say that. But as the words are coming out, I say, it's something that happened to someone else. Can I catch myself? And I go, that's the opposite of what I was trying to say. And so I try and say it again. And I go, it's something that happened to someone else. And I'm upset that I'm saying the exact opposite of the thing that I feel like I should be saying. And she looks at me. She says, how did you know? And she said, My mom and my sister were abused greatly, and I can't forgive the man who did it to them. And we began to pray. And after another 30 or 45 minutes, I'll never forget the sound of the 16-year-old girl's voice yelling to the African sky with tears. I forgive him. I forgive him. That's the supernatural grace of God. That's the supernatural love of God. We wept together. Only through God's grace can a 16 year old girl forgive the man who abused her mother and her sister. It's not fair. What does it look like to live out the grace of God? I want to invite Stephen and the worship band to come up as we close with this song. What does it look like to live out the grace of God? Those people don't love God. It's not fair that God blesses them, right? It's not fair that that God gave the promotion to that person when I'm the one at church every Sunday. It's not fair that I get in a car accident. It happens to be my fault. Dude's got an evolution and an atheist sticker on the back of his car, and I've got a K-Love one on mine. Why, Lord? This is not fair. It's not fair that those families, those parents don't discipline their kids. I disciplined mine since they were three. And my kids act out and those kids got it all together. Grace is not fair. It is something entirely different. Love is not according to logic. Love is according to love. God threw fairness out the door when Jesus was nailed to the cross. God said, instead of fairness, we're going to operate on mercy. Mercy is the basis of our relationship, not fairness. God, I pray in Jesus' name that we live out this kind of radical, scandalous love and grace. God, that we open up our arms to the prodigal son who goes and lives wildly and makes all kinds of mistakes and we open up our arms to embrace that son, and the son who has his arms crossed, who's done all the right things, but whose heart is far from you, that religious person who is so focused on looking good, they stop acting good. That religious person who judges the one, the wayward son. I pray God that as the father opened up arms to the, the rebellious son, and you also opened your arms and extended your love and grace to the religious son god could we be people who love the wayward and love the over-religious and we draw them all closer to you jesus god call us out of rebellious living but call us out of religious living help us to truly see Help us not to be blinded by our system of merit of, God, I deserve this. That person doesn't deserve that. May we act in love no matter what. May we never tire in doing good deeds unto others, whether they deserve it or not. So, God, help us to do that. Help us to live that out in every aspect of our lives, God. We need you. We need your supernatural love and grace, God. Thank you, God, that you showered it upon us even though we don't deserve it. We don't deserve you. We don't deserve you being nailed to a cross for our freedom, for our life. We didn't deserve death to be arrested in our lives. God, I thank you that you're not about fairness. You're about grace. You're about love. So God, I pray that our lives, our hearts, our inner being, our souls, our spirit would reflect that in every way. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand as we close with this last song celebrating death being arrested? God's unmerited favor being showered upon a world that so desperately needs it. In Jesus'
1: name. Alone in my sorrow and dead in my sin Lost without hope and no place to begin Your love made a way to let mercy come in When death was arrested, my life began Ash was redeemed, only beauty remained My orphan heart was given a name. My morning grew quiet. My feet rose to dance. When death was arrested and my life began, sing it with me, church. Oh, your grace so. Washes over me. You have made me new. Now life begins with you. Release my chains. I'm a.